With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to Brought to You By. I'm Charlie Herman. A few months ago, one of our listeners suggested in our Facebook group an idea for us to check out for a future episode, Sears Mail Order Homes. We love the idea. Thanks, Susie. But as we started doing some research, we found out that there's already a fantastic story about these homes from the podcast 99% Invisible. If you haven't listened before, 99% Invisible is a show that explores all the thought that goes into the things around us that we never think about. Like, why are there curb cuts on sidewalks? How did squirrels end up in cities? And what does skateboarding have to do with the shape of swimming pools? So today, we present The House That Came in the Mail, also known as the Sears Kit Homes. Here's the host of 99% Invisible, Roman Mars. About eight weeks ago, one of the producers here at 99PI ordered a book. Our office receives a lot of books, but this one, this one was special. Everyone wanted to read it. Okay, so first of all, this book is beautiful. I know. it's very Only it wasn't just any book. That's the producer, Joe Rosenberg. It was a catalog. Oh my God, it's from 1908. Catalog number 177 of The Great Price Maker. Oh, there's so much stuff. The Sears and Roebuck mail order catalog was nearly omnipresent in early 20th century American life. In 1908, when this particular issue came out, one out of every five Americans were already subscribers. So is this kind of like the uh, the Amazon warehouse before the Amazon warehouse? Yes. Anyone, anywhere in the country, could order this catalog for free, look through it, and then have anything their heart desired delivered directly to their doorstep. Like, seriously, anything. Parasols and pipes. Really fancy-looking belts. Ostrich feathers. The world's best. Ostrich feathers. Oh, headstones. At its height, the Sears catalog offered over 100,000 items on 1,400 pages. It weighed four pounds. Today, those 1,400 pages provide us with a snapshot of American life in the first decade of the 20th century. 1596, our new Williams special single-strap buggy harness. What? Wait, what is it? It's a sheep-shearing machine. Menstruation products have definitely evolved. The Sears catalog tells the tale of a world itemized. But starting with this very issue, in 1908, the company that offered America everything began offering what just might be the most audacious and in some ways most necessary item of all. And... (gasps) Wait, these are houses. 
On page 596, Sears subscribers would come across a drawing of a house. Two stories, nine rooms, gabled roofs, and a price, $1,700. Wait, $1,700 for... no. I think the whole... For the house? Yeah. From 1908 to 1940, the Sears Modern Home Program offered complete, full-size, mail-order houses to the would-be homeowner. What would come to be called kit homes. Sears actually provided an entirely separate catalog for these kit homes, featuring dozens of different designs. All you had to do was select your preferred model from the catalog, fill out the provided form, send in a check, and a few weeks later, everything you'd need would arrive in a train car. Its door was secured with a small red wax seal, just like the seal on the back of a letter to the king or something. It was to be broken only by you. You throw open the door to this box car and you're looking at 12,000 pieces of framing lumber and 20,000 cedar shakes. That's Rosemary Thornton, an architectural historian and the author of The Houses That Sears Built. She says that that train car also came with every single door, every single doorknob, a fold-away ironing board for your kitchen, even the mantle for the fireplace. And then you would begin the process of dutifully loading it either onto your your mule and cart or your Model T. The lumber came pre-cut, kind of like a giant Ikea set, along with, in true Ikea style, an instruction booklet. If you provided the foundation, Sears promised that working without a carpenter and only rudimentary skills, you could finish your Sears mail-order home in less than 90 days. Although Rosemary says those instructions also came with a warning. Do not accept anyone's advice on how this house should be built. Follow this instruction manual and do not deviate. So if the old wizen carpenter comes by and says, I wouldn't build it that way, and you know, Sears is warning you up front, do not listen to that man. Sears would go on to ship out some 75,000 homes across the country. In doing so, they helped replace the idea that each new house needed to be built from scratch with the promise that new homes could be standardized, affordable, and within reach of every family. Long before the advent of housing developments in the modern suburb, it was the Sears kit home that gave Americans their first taste of 20th century domestic life. But it's also a chapter of housing history that was almost lost. Sears was not the first company to offer kit homes, nor even the first mail-order catalog. But it came to dominate mail-order because its founder, Richard Sears, was that thing that so many people would claim to be over the course of the 20th century. But very few actually were. He was a marketing genius. He, he just did so many things. And one of, the, one of my favorites is that Sears knew that most farm households would have both the Montgomery Ward and the Sears Roebuck catalog in the household. So he purposefully made his catalog just a little bit less wide and a little bit less tall than the Montgomery Ward catalog, knowing that when the farm housewife was tidying things up, she would naturally put the Sears Roebuck catalog on top of the Montgomery Ward catalog. I love that. By 1907, Sears and Roebuck was selling the then equivalent of $1.3 billion of merchandise to American families every year. And it's around this time that Richard Sears saw a way to sell even more. Most American families were still living in multi-generational housing. The reigning paradigm of the middle class was the Victorian home with its many little rooms divvying up children, uncles, and grandparents. Sears looked at this idyllic scene of families living in harmony and saw a wasted opportunity. Why should newlyweds move into old homes with old things when they can move into new homes and fill them with new things? From Sears. 
And thus, the Sears Modern Home Program was born. And it was a hit, particularly after the end of World War I, when the influx of returning veterans triggered a need for more housing. And there was literature that said, if you really love this country, if you really want to do right by America, buy a house, build a house. And that's when Kit Homes really took off. Sears cut the lumber for almost all of these homes, ready to order, in giant mills situated across the country. The largest, in Cairo, Illinois, at the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, covered nearly 40 acres, and the sheer variety of homes it shipped out was staggering. That first Modern Homes catalog had over 40 models to choose from, but Sears would go on to offer 447 different designs. Every house in the catalog had a name befitting its architectural aspirations. So if you always dreamed of living in a California mission-style home, but you couldn't actually move to California, you might consider purchasing Sears Alhambra model. Other styles included the craftsman-style Winona and the Dutch colonial Martha Washington. They range from everything from what I would call a hunter's cabin, literally a two-room house for two or three hundred dollars, to the Sears Magnolia, which was 2,900 square feet, two full bathrooms upstairs, a half bathroom downstairs, two full fireplaces, a den, even had servants' quarters and a servants' private bath. Sears even offered a six-classroom schoolhouse, complete with an auditorium and library. But mostly, it was homes. Big, beautiful, empty homes, just waiting to be filled with things. In fact, if you look at some of the old floor plans, it'll feature the living room, the dining room, the bedrooms, but then it will say, place for a graphophone, spot for a piano, place for two tufted chairs. And so he was kind of showing people how to stuff their houses with stuff from the Sears Robot catalog. And consumers obliged. There are tales of first-time homeowners who bought what you might call a turnkey operation from the catalog. The house, the furniture, and the many little things that rested on the furniture. A whole new life, all from Sears. In part because the company used its considerable marketing savvy to make it clear that building your house was going to be easy. With a pre-designed home, you didn't need an architect. And with the pre-cut lumber frame, you didn't need a carpenter either. You could treat it like any other consumer item. Sears even had this ad in the front of the catalog. It showed two Rodessa models, one of Sears' most popular houses, being built side by side. One was built from scratch, essentially, using ordinary building materials and uncut stick lumber. The other with pre-cut lumber. In the ad, the house with the stick lumber sits unfinished. People are collapsed in the front yard, exhausted. And then the house where it was built with a pre-cut lumber, they're sitting on the porch with a mint julep, you know, having just the time of their life. And so although many people did hire a contractor to build their Sears home, many did not. And I have heard many stories about uh, families receiving their kit home and calling on neighbors to help them come out and start the process of building the house. For many families, these were their first homes with things like central heating and insulation. In some neighborhoods, a Sears kit home might be the only house on the block with electricity. And in 1911, Sears began offering competitive mortgages to their customers, which also helped people in neighborhoods of color get around the practice of redlining. And redlining just meant that the bankers and the mortgage uh, lenders would draw a line around neighborhoods where they would not loan money. So Sears didn't do any of that. And that enabled immigrants, men and women of color, and single women who would otherwise never have a chance of becoming a homeowner to have indoor plumbing for the first time. But then the company discovered that it had made a mistake, one that will probably sound all too familiar. 
From the beginning, Sears had made sure their mortgage policy was like everything else in their catalog, obtainable. The application form was only half a page long, and almost everyone who applied for a mortgage qualified, meaning that the average Sears homeowner was also in debt to Sears. In the roaring 20s, when interest rates were low and liquidity high, it wasn't a problem. But when the Great Depression hit, things got ugly fast. The company ended up foreclosing on tens of thousands of its very own customers. I mean, it it was an emotional devastation. We all know the Great Depression was horrible for so many reasons, but losing a home that you had built with your own two hands just seems like such a twist of the knife. For Sears, it was a PR disaster. Rosemary remembers talking to someone in 2003 who described how Sears had foreclosed on their grandparents' home in 1931, the very same home Sears had sold them a decade earlier. And he said, for two generations, our family never patronized Sears ever again. I mean, those are strong feelings to go from 1931 to 2003. After years of declining sales, Sears would finally close its modern homes department in 1940. A few other kit home manufacturers, ones that hadn't sold mortgages, they survived. But the Sears kit home boom was over. Then came World War II, and with it, the next modern housing boom, featuring the rise of the suburbs and the prefab home, the homes so many of us live in today. Meanwhile, most of the Sears homes, the Alhambras, the Argyles, the Magnolias, they ended up being sold to new owners who didn't know what they bought or didn't care to know. Despite the high quality of the materials, over the decades, as the company became associated with convenience over and above quality, no one wanted to admit that they lived in a home that came from the Sears catalog. It was embarrassing. So a lot of them ended up being renovated beyond recognition. Many were torn down. Others were simply abandoned. And as for where to find the ones that remain? Unfortunately, after World War II, during a corporate house cleaning, the sales records were destroyed. So these records are, the records are missing. Records are gone, uh, We chief. don't know. They're, they're not just missing, they're gone. They're gone. <laughs> they're in somebody's burn pile. All that stuff was disposed of. So the only way to find these houses today is literally one by one. A few weeks after I interviewed Rosemary, I went to see some of the last remaining Sears homes outside of Cairo, Illinois, the town where Sears' largest mill had once stood. When I got there, the only sign that there had ever been anything there was the name of an overgrown back road, Sears, leading to two tiny houses, two Sears Rodessa models, sitting next to each other. They were the twin Rodessa models from that original advertisement, with the two homes being built, one fast, one slow, side by side. Now they were in so-so shape, but somehow they'd outlived the mill that built them here on Sears Roebuck Road. I stopped to take a look, and 30 seconds later, a man waved me inside. They're just noisy. They don't mean no... They, they try to scare you off, I think. Guy Parks greeted me wearing an old mechanic's jumpsuit. As he settled into an easy chair in the living room, he told me that he'd lived on and off in Cairo since the 1950s and that he first laid eyes on this Rodessa nearly 35 years ago. And the house was derelict. I mean, it was, the roof was leaking, the windows were broke out. It was still safe, but it was old. Guy ran into the owner a little while later, and the owner said to him, how about I sell you the place, and you fix it up? I said, oh, hell, I can't buy nothing. I ain't saved a dollar out of my last check. He said, I'll make it where you can buy it. He said, 15, I'll sell it to you for 15. 
I thought he meant thousands. I said, man, I wouldn't get that far if it's up in shape. He said, I'm talking about hundreds. I said, you wait right here. So Guy went out, came back an hour later with the cash, and bought the Rodessa for $1,500 on the spot. Eventually, he'd buy the Rodessa next to it, too, the twin. His son lives there now. And I hate to say this, but I'm dumb enough that I spent everything I made for the next five, six years on this place trying to make it right. Did you know that it was a, a, a Sears, a Sears? Yeah, I, I, knew, I knew that all these were Sears homes because the man that lived down on the corner, he worked for Sears. Did he tell you any stories about, about the mill? Oh, yeah. But he always told me the bad stuff. Guy's neighbor told him that a job at the mill had been hard, dangerous work. As with a lot of mills in the area, it wasn't uncommon to see employees missing fingers. When the Sears Modern Home Department closed, the workers purchased the plant and switched to making crates for bombers during World War II. After that, they tried making their own kid homes under a new name, but ultimately, they couldn't hold on. The mill closed in 1955. They didn't make very many homes after that. I think this one down on the end, the little yellow house, was probably the last one they built. And it was just a little a little shotgun house. My wife's sister lived there until she died. Even Guy's house isn't very serious anymore. He's replaced a lot of the original parts over the years. See that front door? Yep. The only thing in this house is in this room right here that's original was that front door. The Sears door. Before a series of race riots gutted downtown Cairo in the 1960s, the town had nearly 100 other Sears homes. Now maybe only a third of them are left. Guy watched as the rest were abandoned or reduced to rubble. And uh, the downtown just kept going down, going down, going down. You could see every month or so there'd be another business gone. Just, finally, there was nothing down there but derelict buildings that's falling down. And uh, since then, all, that, all that's gone. It's just, uh, it's all gone. It's nothing the same. For a long time, Guy Parks' little Rodessa and its twin were just two of a small handful of Sears homes that had been located and identified. When Guy bought his house, of the 75,000 kit homes that Sears built and shipped, maybe 5% had been properly documented. Most sat undiscovered. If you lived in a Sears house, chances are you didn't even know it. But a little over 20 years ago, one woman took a big step towards changing that. Although, as she herself would be the first to admit, she didn't really mean to. It's pure serendipity that I ended up in this field. This is Rebecca Hunter. And no, she doesn't live in a Sears home. But she does live in a town on the other end of Illinois, a little west of Chicago on the Fox River. It's called Elgin. And unlike Caro, Elgin was not known for Sears homes. When Rebecca first got there in the mid-90s, almost no one there, herself included, knew what a Sears house was. Then my partner died in 1995, and I was doing everything because it helped. And that's how Rebecca ended up at the local library, where she happened upon a book about Sears homes, which contained old catalog images of the various models, which would mean nothing except that one bitterly cold day in February, 1997. That book happened to be lying on the dining room table. And I picked it up and I said, oh, ha ha, I wonder if I could walk around my neighborhood and find one of these houses. That would be really funny. And so I picked up the book and I set about walking in my neighborhood. Like how many were you realistically expecting to find? I wasn't expecting to find any. It was really kind of fun. You know, I had a goal, I had a mission, and I forgot about the cold. 
And then after, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. I was walking down Plum Street and I saw this house and I instantly knew it was a Sears. Right there, after almost zero effort, boom, a Sears house. Rebecca looks at the house, looks at the book, looks at the house, looks at the book. And it's a match. Craftsman style, tapered porch columns, the Avalon model. Then I said, huh, I wonder if I could walk around my neighborhood and find another one. (laughs) And so I did. On walk after walk, Rebecca kept finding Sears models. The Mitchell, the Crescent, the Valonia. Then there was the Betsy Ross, the Osborne, and the Alhambra. In fact, there's one street that has a sunlight model on one side of the street, and the opposite is the starlight. So you have a sunlight and a starlight right across the street from each other. But Rebecca wanted to confirm that these were Sears homes. So she sent a mailer out, asking each resident to go and inspect the basement. When they did, most discovered beams bearing a special stamp with a part number from Sears. Others found shipping labels from Sears on the back of attic baseboards. Still others managed to find their home's original Sears blueprints. And Rebecca's not even done. There are still more houses waiting to be investigated. What did the total number of uh, houses in Elgin end up being? At the moment, um, I think we are at 237 Sears houses and about 100 from other companies. What's more, most of the homes Rebecca found looked like they were straight out of the catalog. They'd barely been altered since the 1920s. That's why she was able to find so many, because the homes could still be recognized. And there was a specific reason why. When the Elgin Watch Factory, which had employed a quarter of the town, closed in 1964, Elgin entered a localized recession, sparing it from the renovation craze of the 60s and 70s. Instead, Elgin Sears Homes simply sat there through the decades, untouched. Does anyone ever point out the fact that the closing of the watch factory froze the houses in, in time? Oh yeah, we, we talk about that. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> we love it. Rebecca's study of the Elgin Homes, along with the work of other researchers like Rose Thornton, our architectural historian, would help to launch what has become a Sears house hunting movement. People whose chief passion in life is to scour the land, trying to find as many kid homes as possible including Rose. Some people do crossword puzzles and some people do jigsaw puzzles. I guess I look for Sears homes. Well, actually, me and Rose and Dale and Wendy and Andrew and Nigel and Cindy look for Sears houses. Those names form part of an elite core of the Sears house hunters, an A-team, if you will. And like any proper A-team, each member has their specialty. Rosemary hunts for the rare Sears Magnolia, the three-story colonial mansion. So far, she says, they've found 10. Dale Wolke specializes in kit homes built by Sears' biggest competitor, the Aladdin Company. And Andrew Much is the numbers guy. He's currently working with about half a dozen people on a database that would list every single Sears. Meanwhile, Nigel Tate, at 19, is the youngest member of their team. He's found over 1,000 kit homes without even leaving his desk. He uses Google Street View. But mostly, they hunt for houses the old-fashioned way, chasing down clues and patrolling the mean streets of America in a car, together. And Andrew's up in front, and he's got his computer, and he's writing down addresses. And Dale is driving, and Wendy and I are in the back seat each with a camera, and everybody's looking out the window and somebody says, hey, what's that over there on the right? Although, let's face it, they're not exactly bounty hunters. And so I'm getting out and I'm taking pictures and this very 
large, angry man bursts out the front door. He has a baseball bat in his hand. (laughs) We get in the car and we take off. The occasional misstep aside, Rose and Rebecca think that they and other house hunters have helped identify nearly 50,000 kid homes from Sears and other companies. So the next time a ragtag team of researchers armed with cameras, laptops, and an old Sears catalog knocks on your door and asks if they can take a quick tour of your basement, don't be frightened. They're there to help. And who knows, you might even be standing in an undiscovered model. Have you ever seen a Sears schoolhouse? Because I saw that they offered that one year. Oh, yeah. I've been looking for that a long time. Good Lord. I've been hunting that thing down like it's my job. To see some awesome photos of the kit homes, as well as the Sears catalogs, check out this story on 99% Invisible's website. We have a link to it in our episode description. This story was produced by Joe Rosenberg with mixing and technical production from Sharif Youssef and music by Sean Real. Brought to you by, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. See what I did there? Thanks for listening.